you can't use Albania as an example, right, of a European country that I can use Albania as an example of anything that I want. Right, but yeah, I'm free to do that. Well, so you say, (laughs) um, you know, and so, you know, this wheelchair, you might end up in it. I don't do anything easy. So I was like, oh, you know, there's a farm truck. So I'll buy it. And, does it. and it's, it, you know, everything appeared to be okay. <laughs> and I'm I'm not a car guy, but I grew up around, like all my all my buddies were, became mechanics, uh, you know, heavy machinery mechanics, truck mechanics, car mechanics, certified, Infinity or what, whatever. And they had a hobby house in Fairview and it was... Everybody would go, but, but bring their cars in, and they would have their gaming, their guns. You know, we'd have all all of our stuff. And I was the non-car guy. And I, of course, I went through flight school, so I, 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 and and I can work on an air on a plane. So you know, I can work on a an aircraft, but I can't work on a car more or less. But then I learned a lot from growing up with them and being around. So I knew how to do basic stuff to get a car going, and uh, that's non-computer. Yeah. And then I know, you know, like, oh, okay, you know, right, this is a distributor. This is, I, you know, there's a proportioning valve. I mean, I know stuff like that. I know how to do brakes. Like, you know, I need to place the pads. Okay, I get it. Um, I need to bleed the brakes. Okay, I, I know how to do that. Um, but once you start getting, like, deep into it, you know, I, I know what something does, but I'm not even sure what it's called. Yeah, you know. So I went, so the truck, I had to change out the chassis and, and in doing so, because there was a bunch of off-brand welds and, uh, from the, from the, um, previous owner. And then on top of that, there was, they put a, a hitch that went almost all the way to the engine block, which the frame was, was essentially shearing itself into two pieces. So I, I, I just got done, uh, two, it was two months of just figuring out okay i gotta get a period chassis and i gotta change it over and i and while you're doing that you're fighting other car guys were saying what you need to do is you need to do this get an aftermarket so and i'm like i can't it's just it's my everyday truck i just drive it every day it's, that's my car um and so anyways after it was all done and after it was all together back together again because i hadn't had it for almost the entire summer because i was working on it and it's slow going for a guy like me, you know, like proportioning valve. I'm like, okay, which one is, I know more about proportioning valves now than I care to know. So basically a container, and if there's a car guy, listen to this, he'll laugh. There's a container that <clears throat> creates pressure and for the braking system to work and it'd be distributed properly. Uh-huh. It's just like this big metal block that has different holes in it and it has like a little bit of an actuator and so that it, it, it all the fluid goes in there the brakes and then goes out but something magical happens inside it i don't know exactly maybe a little bit but but when you open the door to the truck there's no sound maybe a little creaking yeah when you put the key in the truck there's no sound when you turn the key to the truck, there's no sound. When you drive the truck, it's just the rumble of the truck. Yeah. You want your seatbelt on? Great. 
you don't want it on, fantastic. There's, uh, you know, 20 gallons of petrol sitting behind the, the seat, mm-hmm. the, the driver's seat. There's no breakaway steering column. So if you do hit something, you'll get pinned by the steering wheel. And there's no breakaway glass, so you'll get shredded by the glass and then consumed by the flames of the gas tank once it ignites. And your only solace will be that whatever you hit with all that steel, that person dies definitely before you. You get to see that perish before you get consumed by your vehicle. So I understand the safety issues with like a seatbelt warning and, and some of these things. But it's just outrageous. Not only is it telling you about the seatbelts, telling you about the you know, the road is wet, and they've got the, the there's this is going on, and your headlights are not on, and maybe they're not on the wrong set. It's just a constant barrage just in your car, and so there must be a psychological component to being constantly pinged uh, by things that has created a collective anxiety, mm-hmm. and so. And couple that with actual things that are happening. So it's like micro macro level, you know? Mm-hmm. So at the car level, you're getting hit with all this stuff. And then your phone and everybody else is attached, but then on this like larger level. And so you see, I sent you a couple an article or two. I don't know if you saw them. I, I, I glanced at them. I didn't have time to fully digest them. So I, I, I think I, I, you know, so, so I, they're, they're, they're everybody's pretty hammering Maloney. Uh, I, I think it's Maloney, the, the president of Italy for saying, you know, you know, that, you know, Islam in Europe is bad. And then, and, and, and the challenge, the, the funny response that I, I was chuckling because the response was, well, well, in Albania, everything's fine. Albania, you know, Albania proves Maloney wrong. And I, and I'm going, It's such a peculiar thing because there's this I think there's this sort of collective anxiety because of 9/11 and terrorism and everything else and then there's constant stuff and then you have a guy there's a there's a guy out there who I listen to um, because he's been really interesting he's got these really interesting way of speaking he's so articulate his name is Douglas Murray I'm familiar with Douglas Murray and you know he's he's just one of those guys that's just so articulate um, and he's he's well spoken and he can really deliver a sound dry sentence in such a way um you know i I think he's i think he's hyper intelligent and i think that he's caught up a little bit with his own voice and rhetoric but i i don't i don't think he's incorrect in how presenting the mindset uh, uh the british mindset and, and presenting the ideas that of this uh, sort of isolationism, you know, the other is wrong. That you know, we're try- Muslims are trying to Islamicize the entire the entirety of Europe. I mean, he's been accused of a quite a few things, um, and maybe they're right. You know, that this Eurabia, uh, which is, uh, is Islamifying the uh, the. Um, there's a good, I guess, a French and and an Arabic conspiracy to take over Europe, and then there's the Great Replacement, which is a French and Arabic conspiracy 
So this is like, the, I think the Rivia is a cultural replacement. And I think the great replacement is that French and uh, Arabic officials or uh, individuals are taking over official positions. And then cultural Marxism, um, the idea of, I mean, and that's wokeism, I think. Um, so, but, I, but he's feeding on this sort of collective anxiety that's happened, that's that's really occurred over the last, I would say, 20, 25 years since 9-11 and, and the wars and all this other stuff. And then pinging, and then hitting on immigration of, of the other, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I was reading about Germany and it turns out that the Ukrainians don't want to work. They're, they're, they're tapping into social services and they get their free apartments and they're, they're going, why, why would we work? You know, the same thing that they accuse Muslims of. But what do you think about this collective, is, about a collective anxiety that's both cultural well, it has to do with something as, as small as like just your car and your phone are pinging you all the time. And then it leads into your uh, an arc into political thinking when you're hit with all these cultural elements that from the news and all this other stuff, the jingling of keys from the news. What do you think about that? What often occurs to me is that we are in a technological transition and we've been in this transition really since the industrial revolution but in certain ways it has sped up in the past few decades it's and more so, personal too you know isn't it wouldn't you say it's more personal well it's based in personal technologies yeah um so we are faced with these interesting kind of th th they are eccentricities there are peculiarities that we live with and this is really true for any time but it's it's especially interesting now so for example our lives are completely dominated uh and focused on things that take place within the confines of a three inch by five inch device in our pockets right and so we're effectively looking at the world through this tiny screen because what's happening in that tiny screen is so incredibly important to the ongoing nature of our lives in a similar way we've made a a, a cultural bargain with speed and with transportation and that bargain is that we are willing to sacrifice a certain very non-trivial number of lives every day and every year for the sake of being able to transport ourselves across certain distances in a certain period of time. And we didn't have to make that bargain, but we did. It's important enough to us that we are willing to risk our lives in vehicles and we are willing to view our lives through tiny screens and we're willing to deal with the inconveniences that come with that. Now, as we go, we continue to try to in eliminate those inconveniences and those dangers as much as possible. So as we've made this sort of deal with the automobile, 
we've tried to get the concept of the automobile under control more and more so that it's more safe, more convenient, um, and that sort of thing. But that comes with a certain number of trade-offs. The trajectory that we're on will eventually, if it's able to continue, lead to autonomous vehicles, where suddenly a, a time will come when we really don't have to worry about anything. All the logistics, all the safety, everything that needs to be taken care of is more or less taken care of for us to the extent that we want it to be. But in the meantime, we're in this kind of uncomfortable limbo where we're making trade-offs and compromises because we have an idea of what we want and we haven't quite achieved the technological perfection to reach it. But the challenge is, is that once that happens, it's always progressing. So we're, we're, we're in this uncomfortable space, but it's no, it's, no, it's no more profound than the uncomfortable space that someone was in, in 1840 when technology was burgeoning. You know, there, you know, arguably so, it was more uncomfortable back then. We've, right. we've lessened. So and then we, that's the point. So we've it, traded, you know, a, a bunch of pings and alarms and sensors and stuff like that. Um, because we, we meaning, you know, regulators and lawmakers. That's okay. And, you're speaking for the world like right now. I, yeah. You're speaking for humanity. I get, you know, it's okay. As the, an ambassador. the way that it's panned yeah. out is that, uh, we have traded that kind of the, all those distractions and annoyances um, in, uh, you know, in, in order to achieve a higher level of overall safety and security than we arguably would have had otherwise. Now, that's a very complex, right? Because when you do that, you actually pay less attention to safety and security in certain ways. And so it could be, you know, if you're driving your 1968 truck, um, you are being careful in certain ways that you wouldn't be, you know, if you were in a more modern vehicle that kind of did things for you. Unless you're you when the, and we go around the court, the, 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 the turn and the door was wide open. Yeah, but, but that's just like, that's by no means, you know, granted, right? right? It, it could be, it could not be. Obviously, people had lots of accidents. Yeah. Before we had all, but there, and there's less, and there's less cars on the roads, and yeah, so see the roads are engineered differently. And I don't want to oversimplify it. What I want to say is that it often occurs to me that we are, you know, we find ourselves at any given point in a state of technological transition um, that is based on, you know, what we have decided to prioritize and value as a society, and the various compromises that we have to make as technology tries to catch up with and also helps to shape those values. So as, as in, with all the, as, as, as society has evolved over time and we've figured out ways to make our lives simple or more comfortable and how we've been looking at things the technology of religion to provide comfort, to provide simplicity, right? Yeah. And to survive, to provide uh, 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 some sort of stability and assurance of safety, whether that's, you know, is, and, and I'm speaking from, you know, obviously, you know, in, in physical safety, right? The community, uh, and, uh, 
and and then then also sort of an intellectual and spiritual uh, a safety. So, but it's constantly pinging us as well. You were talking about Albania. I had an Albanian boss for a few years, and he was a very interesting guy, extremely secular, not religious in any way, but interested in religion because. Uh, what he told me about Albania was that Albania had a history of sort of being conquered. And, right. It and, was the crossroads of all these places yeah. and their nationalism is the biggest thing. So, you know, very loosely, you know, roughly speaking, you could say, if, you know, his grandparents were Orthodox and his parents were Soviets and now his family is Muslim. But they didn't really ever adhere very strongly to any of those beliefs. They simply... Well, maybe personally... You yeah, know, in, well, in their home, but not outwardly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Culturally, they because they were Albanians, they had simply learned to adapt right. to what was, you know, prevalent in, in the society. And that that's a key to this, this whole thing with Maloney. It's like, you can't use Albania as an example, right, of a European country. That's I can use Albania as an example of anything that I want. Right, but yeah. I'm free to do that. Right. Well, so you say, <laughs> um, you know, and so... <laughs> You know, this wheelchair, you might end up in it. No, um, yeah, it's it's funny because they hit there. Like you said, there's a history behind why that country is where it is. Yes, yeah, uh, you know, and and so it, it is a. It's like Sicily. Sicily had long. Uh, it's the most conquered place on the planet, right? That's what people say. Maybe the most conquered place in Europe. I don't know. And and so there is a. A, a, a multi-faith identity with Sicilians, right, in Italy, and you know, and 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 so I think it's a pre, a very peculiar example to kind of kind of throw out there. You know, this place exists because, and and we can all act this way. Well, it's part of the collective consciousness of the Albanian people, where their identity as Albanians trumped and their 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 faith backgrounds because. They all were collectively oppressed because of their geography, yeah, and ethnicity, or and 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 and, and, and because of how they were, or where they were on the road to a conquer to a from a conquering country to a conquered. Any given state is going to kind of change its values in certain ways over time because the people within that state are changing, and being born, dying, moving in, moving out, there is flux. But with some states, it happens faster than with others. And so Albania is an example of a state uh, that, because it's used to a certain amount of change, adapts to change more quickly and, and sort of has some built-in mechanisms to do that. Well, at its location, though, because, yeah. you know, like, like Hungary was, is very, was, was conquered, Poland conquered, but by, on both sides, more or less, by Christian forces. Mm -hmm. So you're not socializing with, although the Hungarians for 70, I'm not going to, they were oppressed by, they were conquered by the Ottomans. So I don't want to commit a hate crime from. Well, everybody was conquered by the Ottoman the one time or another. So, you know, grand, the grand, uh, the grand, you know, Turkic peoples. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, there's also a uniqueness to its location that they created that socialization on with different peoples and different faiths, different ethnicities, just like just like Sicily, you know, you're, it, it's an island. It's a stepping stone to Europe, so it's gonna get hit first, you know, yeah, um, by North Africa, and so you're gonna have that element. Um, I mean, we use the same strategy in World War II. You know, we, we went across to Africa and then we popped over to Sicily first, 
and and uh, and and we hammered them, uh, hammered the, uh, the the Germans and Italians, and then and then popped over Messina. Yeah, I went to see um, Godzilla. What is it? Zero. Minus, Godzilla minus one. Okay, <laughs> I don't. I they don't. I, it's, it's in the theaters now. It's. I, I saw the guy. I saw the. Well, maybe I've been confusing it now. I saw the Don. Is it was it? The, I was gonna say Donkey Kong movie. Um, the Kong movie. I saw that. No. Yeah, that was a that was a long no. So Godzilla minus one. It, it's it's a, a movie that was made in honor of the seventieth seventieth anniversary of Godzilla, and it's. Japanese. It was in. in it was, was made. Was, it was made by the Japanese. It was Japanese. It was when we saw it in the theaters. It had subtitles. Subtitles. And they didn't dub it in English. No. Um, and I'm 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 glad that they didn't. Um, Why? But, well, because it was a really interesting window into a certain point of view about Japan. It takes place right after the war. The world after. Well, world that's war II. it was so, supposed to have been created right. by the nuclear bomb. Exactly. You know? So. Because Godzilla was essentially, it was supposed to be sort of like a warning. It was supposed to be a morality tale. And yeah, like radiation. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, you know, if you do something to do something, take a shortcut to win wars. Right. Then uh, and use technology. It's going to, right? Yeah, because at the time, um, Japan had been forced into a very uncomfortable time of change uh, where they had seen themselves as one thing and now because of the choices that they had made and the reaction of the world to those choices, the, the Western world to those choices, they now had to see themselves very differently. And, and so this movie, you know, it's a, it's a monster movie, but it's also a very poignant and, and dramatic and well done picture of this period of time in which Japan is asking the question, can we change into what we need to be without losing what we value about ourselves. And the characters are sort of asking those questions in different ways throughout the movie. And it's, for me, it was a, just a really interesting uh, window into this, this fascinating period of time where you've got this very proud, established, tradition-bound nation that because of circumstances and choices now finds themselves in a situation of not only having to change, but having to change very quickly. Right, and it's, and it's forcibly, yeah. too. Yeah, and because they were, left, they were essentially occupied. Yeah, the train has yeah. left the station. They still are occupied. But the point is, they, they did it. They managed to find a way to change, to adapt to new times, and to also preserve elements of the cultural identity that they valued. And now, you know, when we think of what Japan is, there are very strong cues you know, there's a there's a very vivid picture of what this is. This is Japan. This feels like Japan, right? The same well, thing is true made, for there is a culture, yeah, like yeah, cultural strength. You know, yeah. the same thing is true for something like someone something like France. France has for many years been resisting um, change, uh, change driven by um, Muslim immigrants, right? Because France sees itself as something that has a strong cultural heritage, right? But you're looking, you're giving me that expression because you know, as well as I do, that even within that, it changes over time. Right. I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, if the French, it's really tough with the French because they are the most successful neocolonial 
country on the planet. Right. Mo I, most of Africa speaks France. Well, the, there's, 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 French, well there's yeah. this thing called the Francophile countries. Yeah. And, and, and so they've established where these countries still use the Franc. Mm -hmm. um, you, you had French education. They only imp they, they have essentially an embargo. Uh, you only have French products um, and uh, can only import, export French products. Uh, the education is worthless if you're not like a, a guy who looks French, you know. But, right. And... Um, and 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 their products are hyper expensive, and so, and so the, so they you know they benefit from that, um, and so like the, and like this Douglas Murray guy, you know, it, it was it was interesting because I listened to a lot of what he says to figure out what's going on. And I, I'm going, you know, he's he's it's weird because he's speaking to a, a a people who consider themselves diverse because of the empire, but it was an empire that viciously rearranged the world, but you can't be. They talk, and I talk about diversity all the time. I, and I, when I chat with my British friends. I go, you're not, you, you, you know, look at London, look at this, look at that. First of all, they have small cities, um, except for London. London is very large, but the next largest city is Edinburgh for 600,000 people. And then you have Manchester, which is about 400,000 people. The challenge is, is that you have to go to a British school. You have to speak with a British accent. You have to indigenize yourself to the British culture right. in order to be accepted. And and so you might be Indian, but look at look at their look at their 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 uh, prime minister right now. Uh, so well, in the context of this conversation, though, my, my point is that you know uh, any any given you know established nation or group of people will try to preserve the things about themselves that they consider to be important. But in the midst of that, they will be subject to external pressures and internal pressures that are in fact changing them over time. We don't necessarily notice the ways in which we change, but everything's always changing. Right. Well, yeah, everything is always, it's amorphous. Everything is always, is kind of moving around. I think, I think the challenge is that you've got this, you know, I said the things that I was sending to you, like, I, I don't know, like you said, I was, I was thinking about all of this collective anxiety. There's so much collective anxiety about Muslims and the Muslim population. And, and and I mean, part of my existence is to deal with that internally in in the interfaith perspective. I mm -hmm. I to do about twenty percent of what I do now is 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 multi faith because there's a multi faith is it's 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 a mature industry. You know, there, there's there's a lot of multi it, it, multi faith groups getting together. There's a, a lot of multi faith it, it, um, formal and informal groups. I mean, I've brought some of them into existence, right? So. You know, as a founding founding uh, organization for the International Religious Freedom Roundtable (DC), yes. and then we've got the ministerial, which is you know that's that was something that we've worked on for ten years. The International Religious Freedom Summit. I was a pro bono, you know, consultant on that, and 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 now those things are moving, but that mo they're all multi faith, um, but interfaith. You know, there's a lot of stuff you know dealing with on the interfaith side, but there's these it's this constant pings. Right, because we've been uncomfortable f over the last twenty-five years with not only with immigration, but this I, this, this lar these large well, these large movements of people globally, right, regionally and globally. And then on top of that, we have this this Islamic world that's now part of this globalist idea, right, that we are all sort of integrated but we also have this these wars right you know we also have these this terrorist acts and all these other stuff and so everybody's trying to suss all this stuff out 
but then you get these you know these these people that are trying to preserve their cultures preserve who they are preserve what they're doing and so it comes out in this strange way where it's 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 pushing back on something that may not be the problem right uh, you know it may be something else but this is the thing that's the loudest this is the thing that's sexy to 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 address and it, you know, it sells books it, it puts you on the tv it puts you on all kinds of stuff and yeah and it's the, kind of the ter- tyranny of the urgent or the tyranny of the distracting right you know i mean i, I don't think that i think douglas murray's right you know i think that the, the british have a culture they have an identity they've done really really good in in a, a good job at indigenizing those to coming into the country um into british culture um I think that that you know his his idea of I mean I agree I agree with his idea of ISIS people should lose their citizenship you know I, I his most recent thing though is people that support the Palestinians should have their citizenship revoked because if you support Palestine then you support you don't support Israel and, and you're supporting Hamas. I agree if you're a supporter of Hamas. Now, what does he mean by support? Well, that's, there's, a, there's, there's, of course, you know, like you said, he's very eloquent in the way he speaks. I mean, Hamas, I, I, I you know, I, I kind of agree with him on Hamas too. Uh, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to support a doomsday cult of any sort, then you should be, you should lose, you should maybe let lose your citizenship, but there should be something that this done. I really want to take issue with the with the word support, and, and I don't know specifically what Douglas Murray was proposing here. But I mean, you take something like uh, Soviet Russia, right. and you know the slightest hint or whisper that you in any way disagreed with or opposed to the state, and you were in a gulag, right? Well, uh, right, and, and well, I, I, it I, didn't, I, you know, it didn't, and it became paranoid to a point where people were frequently, if not ubiquitously, accused of being anti-revolutionary. Counter-revolutionary. Counter-revolutionary. Yeah. Um, in, you know. Good stuff. For having done nothing at all. You know, it's, so when you say that this person supports this or that, what exactly do you, do you mean that they're sending money to Hamas? Like, is there some... Well, I, I, so here's the thing. So you're getting the specificity. Look, Douglas Murray is very—he's very passionate about speaking articulately, but in broad terms. Mm-hmm. Right? So he made—he made an impassioned speech about how you know he's—you know—he's got most of most of his friends are Jewish, and he's surrounded himself with Jewish friends, you know, and um, and and so you know, and as such, you know, they're they're, they're good people. They've got his stamp. And and supporting them is really important because not just does he just support Israel, he's, you know, he's got a, a cadre of Jewish friends, which gives him legitimacy. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, uh, binders you know, full of Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's we, we, you know, a very very odd, odd speech. I, I, I'm always suspicious of people who talk like that. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a Jewish community, and and you know, I, you know, I mean, I, I I'm I'm interacting with my, my Jewish friends all the time, but. I don't know if that gives me any sort of gravitas to say anything or to to say that um, I my views now have more weight. 
um, or these people are better than those people because I know them, you know, which is a weird sort of, I don't know, sort of maybe even the, I, I hate this coming out of my mouth, it's a neo-colonial mindset, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm the guy who says who's good and who's bad, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a slippery slope. You know, the British were the were the were the was the first country to do this. They they basically revoked citizenship for ISIS people, right? Um, and and so, you know, I mean, they're a doomsday cult, right? So so, when has has the British done this for other doomsday cults mm -hmm. that aren't Muslim? That would be my question. When when has it been so something so egregious? I mean. And, and, you know, um, um, uh, like Guy Fox Day, you know, like mm -hmm. that guy went to go blow up Parliament, but they didn't take his citizenship away. They just killed him. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm sure, and, and, and so the problem is, is that when is it appropriate to do, like you're talking about support, it's a slippery slope to when you start pulling rights away from people, when you start pulling citizenship, when you start doing stuff. And Dennis Murray, listen to him talk about, well, you know, all these other Muslim countries don't take the Palestinians, you know, and they should, what they should, they shouldn't be coming to us, they should be going all over. So it's you know it it, it it was it was it wasn't long ago when you know you know the, the, when do, when does a country take other people because someone else says that they should because they view them as as uh, as a you know, homogenous population. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? So how do, you know what 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 where does that come from? You know so. The reason I know there's very specific reasons why the Palestinians are not accepted by other Muslim countries because there there's an ethnic difference, there's a religious difference, but there's also a political difference. It's very simple, um, and there's a, a history of political differences that interacts with violence, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. What what constitutes a citizen, and what are the the rules and boundaries around citizenship, and different countries interpret that in different ways. And certainly, you know, throughout history, there have been lots of different interpretations of that. So you take something like the Roman Empire and the, the I would imagine the, the majority of people living in the Roman Empire, and my wife is going to be laughing if she knows that we're talking about the Roman Empire right now, but um, the, the majority of people living within the confines of the Roman Empire were not Roman citizens. Right. There was a, there was a difference between living in the country and being a citizen. And I think that Right. Paxano, like, you're right, Paxanum Romana, you mean, but you could attain obtain citizenship. Yeah, and there, so, so citizen there was a came, process. Citizenship, yeah, you could obtain citizenship, and citizenship came with both a certain set of rights and a certain set of responsibilities. Right. And I think that, you know, in terms of kind of trying to structure human society, yeah, it totally makes sense that any given discrete nation would determine who is a citizen, how does one become a citizen, what are their rights? What are their responsibilities? And how do we enforce that? And I, I believe that's totally open to the negotiation. I don't think that, like, I, I don't see any particular reason why America would just have it right, right now, for example, or why Britain would just have it right, right now. And so, sure, that's fine. I think that the, the only thing that I would want to be careful with is, again, you know, how, how, do, how do we determine whether someone is supporting this thing or that thing? And how are we leaving space for the fact that a that person can change over time and b that thing that they are supposed to be supporting can change over time yeah right 
so uh, and, and are the ramifications of the supposed support in in keeping with those two factors well you, well how do you how do you how do you get into someone who supports something elsewhere and then because you don't like it yeah you know you're you're saying no um it's an it's 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 you know it's, it, you know right now we have you know people crossing the border in America and everybody's freaking out about it and and as they should and Biden is is looking at addressing the border because of course 2024 is coming and he's got to figure something out and that has nothing it, it basically just has to do with uh, you know the, the, the idea that this that well it's an immigration issue but uh, it has to do with the other. You know, coming over to the country, coming into the country. That, I mean, that's a huge conversation, and, and there's lots of things that I'd like to poke around that. Well, I, but, I'm but, curious but, though. Like, can you take what what Douglas Murray said and walk it through? For example, McCarthyism in the mid 20th century. Well, it has to do with citizenship as the border. I'm not. I'm just I'm trying to speak with specificity about that. That's mm -hmm. the thing. It's like it's how you know what what constitutes because like, I I was just. I was just talking with a guy yesterday and his thing was like, people come across the border and then, you know, and then have one, one or two kids and then become citizens and that shouldn't happen. You know, like, well, the, the fundamental, like, like, correct me if I'm wrong here. The fundamental responsibility of a citizen is to pay taxes. Right. If you get right down to it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Right. And so to the extent that one is paying taxes, one is a functional citizen. And to the extent that one is not paying taxes, one is not a functional citizen. I mean, there, there's so other, how like I mean, there's that, that puts Trump in an interesting light for one thing, right? It does. Yeah, uh, you have to be careful. But I mean, you have to be but, careful with that because I do think that there is something with, you know, with citizenship having to do with you know um, some kind of, of 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 loyalty to some kind of. It's not just like an identity, but I you know they, you have to you know, you can have somebody who's paying taxes who's betraying the country. You could, and so I'm I'm. Yeah, I'm obviously simplifying it to right. one parameter, right. but it's an important parameter. My point is that, you know, if we have a group of people, a large group of people who are coming into the country um, because they feel that that is the, the only way for them to, to survive or thrive and for their family to survive or thrive as human beings, and they are not given the opportunity to pay taxes. Right then they are excluded arbitrarily from that essential act of citizenship in a way that is neither helping them nor is it helping the country. Right. It's helping somebody, somebody's winning, but yeah. it's not them and it's not us. Right. Right. And so to me, that sounds just very cartoonishly like a broken system. No, no I, I mean, well, I think we just solved the immigration issue. It's like, it's look, you're welcome. Everybody, you're welcome. <laughs> everybody needs to, you know, you, you, everybody needs to just start paying taxes and then have a loyalty oath and uh, with consequences if you betray the country. And then if you, if you, uh, and there has to be something, there has to be a third element to it, which means that you have to disclose the most tastiest meal that you can make from your culture. There are lots of, it's, it becomes very complex when you start thinking about things like distribution of labor, right? Because it's not immediately obvious that for one person, there is one job that functionally adds to the growth of the society. It's more complicated than that. Well, and, and right. we're just like we were talking about earlier with technology, we're, 
now that the industries are moving in such strange directions and no one really knows where it's going. Uh, you know, it, it was, it's, you know, the, it was funny, the, the, I was talking with a few nerds in DC about how they were talking about how AI was going to help with artists <laughs> and, and writing and this and that and all kinds of other stuff. And now it's eliminating their jobs and they don't know what to do. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so they're, they're, they're saying we, we, we kind of all encourage this whole thing and now we don't know what, where that's going. Yeah, it's helpful. And I, I, I build websites for a living. And in the course of the past 12 months, um, AI went from being a novelty to something that I use every day. Essential. That has dramatically increased the amount of work that I'm able to do and has allowed me to take on projects that I otherwise would not be able to take on because it's functionally added to my level of knowledge and capability. Yeah. It's a serious thing. Yeah. And, and so I have this thought that occurs to me frequently that this is becoming more and more helpful up to the point where it no longer needs me. Right. Right. And that is a strong and serious possibility that in the not too distant future, that transition will take place. And so one of the things that I find most frustrating about the particular place and time that we're living in is we are, we, we are in an environment of extreme political vitriol where uh, political factions are screaming at each other and slinging poop at each other over issues that have nothing to do with what is arguably the biggest issue anthropologically for us right now. And that is the fact that there is a, a strong chance, if not an extreme likelihood, that within the course of a decade, easily, there could be an, a strong disconnection between production and human labor, where it will no longer be obvious that um, the, the value, uh, that a person brings into a society is based on the type or amount of labor that they can do. And that transition is taking place. And technologically, we're moving to a, a point where there could be an almost complete disconnection between the two. So right now you've got all these people migrating into America because they see opportunities here and stuff like that. They see opportunities for what? For work, right? for labor, right? Because there's this assumption that uh, work equals value and value equals survival, right? But that assumption in 10 years may very broadly speaking, simply no longer be true for human beings. Uh, but you know, you're... you're... You know, we're speaking from, well, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different, but, um, but we, you're speaking from a, we're, we're largely speaking from like a white collar perspective. Yeah. Right? So, so, I mean, I do, um, you know, own and run a bakery. So the hands get dirty and, and, um, and we're, you know, I, I, and it's, you know, there's, there's a, there's a customer service element. I mean, people like us because we engage and know our customers. We say hello when people walk through the door. We do all these things and we know what's going on with their families, but we're also producing small bakes, thoughtful stuff. And, and we have these sort of endearing uh, uh, origins to a lot of our recipes. M McDonald's is working on its automated um, 
McDonald's, you know, stands or whatever they're called, you know, mm -hmm. restaurants. And because it, you know, it cuts in labor. Right. Yeah. And, um, and uh, there's no labor and, and, uh, and it's reliable. It's 24 hours, uh, 24 seven. And, uh, and they're rolling them out in the, in the coming, in the coming years. They're, they're, they're working on what they look like and how they interact. And, uh, and, and so you're right. The, these, there's, there's, there's already a move to move in that direction where you have an AI run, uh, uh automated McDonald's, uh, your, your donuts are delicious. What? You could, or someone could make robots that make donuts exactly the same way that you do. When people come into the coffee shop, they come for an experience. So, well, you know, we're not selling donuts, you know, so it's that famous line from whatever, I don't know, somewhere. I know somebody said it before me, but we're not making donuts. We are making an experience, yeah. right? And so, and so, uh, it's, it's so a, as long as you can have that experience, not in a virtual sense, we have, we have currency. Right. Okay? Um, and so, uh, but the challenge is, is and, and I, we thought about it. I, I, I talked with a company that made automated coffee and I said to myself, well, and I, and I talked to a couple of my business, uh, I don't have any business partners, but people that were potential business partners about putting them, you know, in train stations and doing stuff and saying, you know, it's half moon, it has a physical location and we, we do have our coffee. Therefore, you know, it exists, but, and you're tapping into this yeah. small business. Uh, you know, the, the, the real world challenges, it's not speculative. The real world challenges of employing people is, are, are vast uh right you know i i i i there's the beginning of last year of this year i didn't pay myself for 10 weeks out of the business because i had to make payroll yeah I, um, and no. so you see how the economy is straining in certain ways oh it's out of control because of what's going on with supply and demand right. and all this other the, stuff the economic demands of the context in which we live are becoming more and more out of sync with the economic possibilities for any any given person well, you know, all the indicators are incorrect. Um, my father is a, a, a lifelong educator, so he he was, you know, in, in public schools and in college. And my mother was an eighth grade English teacher. Um, and this is mother when she was thirty became an eighth grade an English teacher. And then my father when he, you know, he, uh, when, he, when, he, when he after he got out of school stopped became an educator. And we were chatting about this and because there's a, you know, there's a lot of stuff online talking about Carnegie, you know, developed the education system. And it was this big diabolical thing <laughs> to like get people to stop thinking and create factory workers, yeah. you know. And uh, and 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 I said and I, we were, my dad and I were chatting about that. And I, I can't I can't take credit for this, uh, this idea because we were walking through it. And the, but we, we came to the conclusion that. Carnegie, Carnegie's system of education was fantastic for its time mm -hmm. because to become a factory worker meant that you could have upward mobility, yeah. buy a house, take care of your family. That's why so many people did. And, and so you, and, and, and here's the thing I, I was just talking and this, and I, I can't remember what I was talking about yesterday, but I was saying, look. The schools weren't just these schools where you just became workers. You had gym, you had the music teacher, you had art, you had the library, you had all those things. I was talking to the director of libraries, Margie, we were chatting about that. And so 
you know, largely, you know, Jim has eliminated now. I don't know what you guys call it. In the, I don't know what, you know, it was, I don't know what the correct political correct term is, but it's called Jim in my day. I don't know what it's it called, something else. Is, is it, is it P? Okay, I don't know. And then, you know, but, and then music has been eliminated and all these different classes eliminated. Yeah, yeah. So now it's just classes. And so it's more of teaching people how to work, become workers or professionals now. Yeah, um, and this was part of the college when I was when I was helping my, my alma mater build their gun relations department. They 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 were they were all about teaching, uh, building curriculums that they got rid of the core, mm -hmm. which had philosophy and and religion and and all this other stuff, ethics and rules, and they just started teaching people to become professionals. Yeah, and and so when they got rid of the core, uh, it, something the identity of the college changed and. And it and and there was a question: Is it liberal arts? You know, because what what's qualifying as liberal arts program uh, pro, uh, uh, classes now are sort of pet projects of teachers of, of professors rather than something that's broader. You know. Yeah, I was just listening to somebody who is explaining, and I'm going to probably you know get this a little bit wrong, but the basic idea is that they've statistic there was a there was a study in which they demonstrated that <clears throat> if you take an average student. And instead of putting them through a process where they're, along with a, a bunch of other students, trying to reach kind of like arbitrary benchmarks in, in education, if you, if you transition them into a method of study where they are building progressively on their own skills so that they're, they're really absorbing the knowledge, then their grade improves uh, by one standard deviation based on that. If you then provide them with a private tutor that can uh, cater the lessons to their own individual needs and pace, then their average grade then increases by another standard deviation. So a C student becomes an A student. Yeah, because they're tapping into right. the different modalities of how now here's the thing. They think that kind of um, personalized education is something that AI can do right now. It well it's ha it's happening. And and so tools are being built very quickly and within, you know, a very short period of time, it will be possible for any given student with access to this technology to take advantage of these educational benefits. And so this is another example where we are in a time of, of extreme technological change. To a certain, some of it is gonna be a flash in the pan, right? But some of it has been, it's, it's, it's established that it is not. Well, I, and, and it's another one of those things where, yeah, we're, we're struggling with this kind of antiquated education system that is not taking into account the pace of change. Well, it, it, you know, it started in the 70s with the educational system and it started to break down. And then instead of re-looking at the, at the educational system, they just kept trying to fix it. Yeah. And now we're in this sort of compounded fix uh, and, and no one knows what to do. You know, they started with charter schools. Let's try that. Let's do this. Let's do, you know, private schools. And so... But it's still the same system. It's still the same bulwark. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I think that there's, you, you know, you kind of need to relook at the system. But maybe you're right. Maybe the AI will will help. I I know that I'm a product of it. I, two years ago, I I I it really started to. You know, I'm semi-retired, right? So, 
I, I and I, you know, you say that summer retirement still work on hours a week, right? Yeah. So whether it's the bakery, whether it's you know, a government work, or whether it's, yeah, it's it's like the NGO that I'm trying to run and this, do this, and and so AI, I have a relationship with sort of three different AI platforms, and I am I can't. It's, it becomes very very difficult to have someone edit your work. Yeah. Uh, and so, or, or to find people that'll edit your work. Um, my mother was my chief editor. She was, like I said, an English teacher. And she's 80 now, and, and, and she, she's still on point. There's nothing wrong with her. But she can maybe edit one or two documents a week. Yeah. And even still, it, it, it you know, um, still very active and stuff like that. But with when it comes to editing and when it comes to engaging with someone who is willing to dedicate their time, AI is, uh, um, over the last two years, I've been able to better my work because of that. Yeah. Uh, and now, uh, because of my interaction, and I always, people would complain at the bakery, and they'd say, oh, you know, the, the, the the square, which is what you use for transactions, doesn't work. When I was, and I'd say it does work. I, I, you know, and my mother would say this: "It's you have all all these machine, all of these little robots have their personalities. Just got to let it breathe." My mother would say. <laughs> but you know, I we got the espresso machine. We've got the the square. We've got the donut robot. We've got every, all these little personalities, right? Yeah. And we're in. And you would say, well, you're imposing a human element to them. Uh, because even though they're not, you know, sentient beings, right? And so, but they all have their nuances. Mm -hmm. And you know, for example, the donut machine, you know that if you do this, that it's going to act up. Um, you know that it'll fail you. You know that it'll scream. It'll make a noise or this will happen. And so, but we're now moving into this idea of integrating the thought, the mindset, the personalities of AI with an integrated site that actually produces something, you know, and that's the McDonald's, right? Yeah. Um, right now we're kind of, you know, an, a, a, a hybrid analog version over there at, at, at the bakery. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a group, there's a, there's a camp that will say, well, the human element is so important. And it's like, well, it's only because we're humans. That, you know, that, that's it, true. I, I think, I mean, one of the conversations that's taking place in this AI space is that there there will be things, you know, assuming that almost anything can and will be automated, which is a big assumption, there will be certain things for which you do want a human, right? Simply as a matter of preference. And the the level of choice that we have in that area is going to have a lot to do with our economic capabilities. You know, uh, um wealth is a function of choice the more the way that i can tell that i am wealthy is the number of choices that i have right yes right and so uh the point here you know to, to kind of bring this whole thing into a theme is that um i really believe that religion as a technology religion is a technology for coping with human life and human experience in a complex and often unpredictable and apparently meaningless world and giving us a set of tools that we can use 
to make that more manageable, right? That's what that's what religion does, right? And um, then technology, you know, you know, uh, you know, production technology is similar. We have this world that is unpredictable and unwieldy, and uh, often in opposition to what we want. And we want to conform it to something that works better for us as human beings. And so we employ these technologies. And the one thing about technology that we can definitely predict is that it's going to change over time. And so in cultures and religion and technology are all in this, this uh, process of constant change and flux. And I think that where we get hung up is that we latch onto any given thing whether it's a catechism or a typewriter and say, this is what it is. This is how it works. And if we change it, it breaks. And that's not necessarily true. And the unwillingness to change causes a great deal of harm and suffering in all these contexts. I mean, well, you know, the question is, well, how much change are you comfortable with? And what change does the change bring value? Uh, and then, and, and of course, you know, what, what, what is value? What is, what is value? If you talk to Douglas Murray, it's, you know, he just wants to sell books, I think, um, <laughs> and be British. I, I, I mean, I would, I would, I would, I would argue. Well, sure. I mean, I would, you know, I would argue. Given that, the opportunity to live that way, who wouldn't, you know, well, and, 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 <laughs> well, and, and, and the thing is, is like, he's living in, you know, where, where he's from and where he's living. It's very easy to kind of, you know, say such things, you know, yeah. um, you know, but uh, um, because you're, 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 you know, and you're culturally British and you're, but you're, and you're from Britain, you you have all this, you, you, there's no, it's, there's nothing that nothing nothing's happening in Britain, um, although you know with America with the 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 difference is is that change and diversity, um, not in the pejorative sense of like you know woke, but the idea of these huge uh, influxes of of immigrants is part of our culture mm-hmm. on on a vast scale. You know we weren't like the Brits. You know you know couldn't couldn't slug it out in, with, with, with white people in Europe. So we went and, and, and hammered indigenous populations all over the world um, and then transferred wealth, you know, to, to Britain. Yeah. Um, we're different, a little bit different than that. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying, it, you know, we're a little bit different than that. But when it comes to uh, our strength, the problem is, is that we had these huge swaths of immigration, but it was like Italians, Irish, you know, it was these huge, these mass migrations. And then, you know, there was a drop off, right? And, and now as it's ticking up from from our borders and with a different population, so right now it's like the Latino population, stuff like that, where there's, you know, we, we don't have a system to address the, the, that, that, that push on us. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and as there's a cultural change coupled with the technological change and cu- coupled with now you're talking about this, this vitriol pl- pl- political interaction yeah i mean i think that we're at the zenith of our uh, we're with the zenith of, of of public discourse uh, all information is available 
everything's out there. Everybody's engaging. Mm-hmm. Everybody's accessible. You know, you can access. You can access. You can access Elon Musk. You can access Trump. You can access. Uh, where whereas there there were a lot of walls um, between spaces when we were young. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was I was very uncomfortable. I was trying to under trying to understand where there was there was adult spaces and there were child spaces and that doesn't exist anymore, right? So I try to reconcile that somehow. You know, um, you know, if you're, I was based in Vegas for ten years and you know, I I thought when I was a kid, you know, the casinos were for adults and then you saw families walk through strollers. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like what's going on there? Yeah, I think that in our society, that's often largely a function of the fact that children have been forgotten. And so there, there's no there's there's very little care paid to, towards the experience of children. But what are you talking about in our now? Are you it's, being serious? It's a little bit schizophrenic. I mean, I, this is I, kind of a, a, a larger conversation. Two things are true. One thing is that cult, that children have been devalued, and one and another thing is that children have been overvalued. And well, so, I, I, on one hand, you know, our culture tends to see children as uh, in, inconvenient and unnecessary. And on the other hand, they tend to see them as far I, too precious and delicate. Yeah, no, I see. I see your angle. I, you know, there's. Uh, I, I can't quite what they're called. I just heard the term a, a few days ago. Um, it's like it's it's a weird term. It's like dingus. It's like it's like you know something without kids. It's like uh, you know independent without kids. And we we want to go on a trip. I, I just saw this video. Um, and it goes, oh, if we, we want to go on a trip. We got to go on a trip. We want to buy this. We buy that. We don't because we yeah. don't have kids. And. Um, and so you're, you're, you're right. From that perspective, there's this idea of, all right, we're not going to have kids because um, we want to be hyper-independent. We want to be, uh, there's a burden uh, of having the children, but and we want to have more resources and we want to have mobility and all this other stuff. And you know, the challenge is, is that the most valuable thing you could do is generate the next, or you know, produce the next generation, right? So that, they, you know, so that we could live on. Right. That's arguably, you know, you can arguably, yeah, but yeah. that it's not obvious that that is the conclusion we have presently come to, not only as a, as in our society, but really Western society as a whole. I mean, if you look at the numbers, um, most Western countries and some Eastern ones um, like China and Japan, for example, uh, have plateaued. Um, well, but that's but that's. That, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, well, I think we're, so it's weird because I, but, but maybe, I, maybe we should save this for another conversation because it's a big one. It is a big one because you're talking about, you know, there's, there's the way in which I think we grew up um, I, and maybe yeah, I'm wrong here, but it's different than what we were talking about, hypervaluing children and, and hyper devaluing. Oh, children. gosh. Yeah. There's a difference. Like when, when we grew up, there was adult spaces, there were children's spaces. Children were seen, not heard. Uh, there was a function, at least my upbringing, of you, 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 your value is what you can do for the family, and 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 do it, you know. Um, so it was all you know tasks, right? And so, um, and if you were upset or this and that, it was, it was, you, you know, my mother, my, my mother, and I'm a product of this, which, and I don't think it's a bad thing, but it was like you know, you you cry. There's no there's no emotion. There's no this. There's no that. You can't. <laughs> My mother would say, "You can't get sick. You can't go to the doctor. You can't do. You, you can't. You can't. Uh, can't. There's no. You can't have allergies. You can't. Now, and and 
And maybe all that from a psychological standpoint, I don't have allergies. You know, I don't really go to the doctor a lot. I don't, um, but you know, a lot of it was just to save, I think money, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, um, but you were talking about something different. We're talking about hyper individuality and, and, and what you, we were, you were talking about wealth, the perception of wealth of having options. Yeah. And so when you have children, it, it does limit your options mm-hmm. and therefore your, your perception of wealth may be, um, may, 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 may be knocked down a few notches. Whereas there's the hypervaluing of children where the children are making decisions for the, mm-hmm. for the, for the adult family. Yeah. Um, or, and, and so that's, um, and I've seen that some of that, some of that happen where it's destroyed you know, like lives and, uh, because of the children making decisions and the, and the parents are making decisions based on the children. And those decisions are monumental and, 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 it, and some of them doesn't make any sense. And, and, and to, to actualize that for a, for a family based on what a child is believing. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, the, uh, a three-year-old is essentially a small drunk person with no education. You know, you can't let them make choices for you, as you say. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, we're going to sound like Matt Walsh here now <laughs> because we're now we're going into like, you know, so, um, but I am, but I, I think the point of, of me, of me walking through this thought of the cars pinging and then you have something like my, my truck, my, my, that I drive, that I drive that doesn't ping you. There's a, there's a certain amount of, of, of satisfaction associated with the risk and of the unknown with driving my, 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 my 68 truck. Yeah. Um, but there's also a, a tremendous amount of satisfaction of not, of, of being in the, in that moment and not, and, 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 and embedding yourself in that experience without anything reminding you or telling you what to do. Yeah. And I, so I totally agree. I, I used to, I, I've driven a couple, uh, I had a 1989 and a 1991 Honda CRX. And I loved those cars because they were essentially glorified go-karts. Yeah, and, yeah. And they they were so comparatively simple. Now a car is not simple. Yeah. But compared to modern cars, oh, without a doubt, they were very simple. Yeah. And 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 the simplicity of it, I found to be a luxury. I have in that box there. It's called a light phone. It's a it's a little phone that has an e-ink display, and a few simple apps on it. Um, and the idea of a light phone is it's supposed to help you kind of simplify your life and weed out distractions. So I've had it sitting in that box for two or three years now, and I've never functionally been able to make the switch from my iPhone to the light phone mm. because the demands of my work yeah. um, are such that I find myself going back to the iPhone. And so that's a form of poverty. It's a concession to a lack of choice. Yeah. I would love to break out that light phone and start using it. And every day that I'm not actually able to do it, I'm conceding to a form of poverty yeah, no. because I don't have the choice. And, and so in that sense, the simplicity of your truck is a luxury. Yeah, I mean, and that's why, why I've, I've engaged. That's why I, I, I have the bakery. It's the same element. I can leave geopolitics. I can leave the, the, the heavy things of my office and go in and, make my babka or yeah. make a donut or go and just jump on barista yeah uh and 
And so with, and, and, and you, you're, there's, you know, of course you could just jump into that world. And it's funny because I've left the beltway, right? I only go down to the beltway. I'll go to DC when I need to. I only go to when I need to. Down there, there's a whole group of people that say, wow, I don't know what happened to JT. I, I hear he's making coffee. I, I hear he's, a, <laughs> I hear he's a barista at a cafe, you know, like that type of thing. And so, but I've been able to produce more here because I'm not serving the agendas of individuals that would ping me because I'm in proximity. Right. Um, you know, favor this and that, blah, 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 blah. But when it comes to like sort of bring this home, I was talking about the technology of, of religion, you know, as a, a sort of, you know, I, I don't know, is, is how it applies and how it, 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 it forces us to act and then the constant pinging that happens with you depending on where you come from it it it, it you, you're you're making choices and burdened by these choices but that come from a source that may be good for you and bad to others you know bad for you and good to others you know there's all that um, and, and it, there's, uh, there's, you know, there's all these variables that reach and, 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 but the problem is, is that, that it's, ch that the globe is changing so much that whatever is pinging us from a faith background, it, 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 it motivating, you know, this guy, Douglas Murray to say, uh, you know, we, we, you know, Muslims are the problem, right? This mm -hmm. is what's going on. And, and, uh, where, and where, where Maloney, Maloney, I think that's her name. Uh, the the president of uh, of of Italy, if she's right, you know she's she's right. Italy can't do what Albania did. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. But they are in a in a crunch. They're in a problem. They have a population decline. Yeah, um, you know a, a major population decline, and they're trying to figure out who's Italian to to give them citizenship and do things. And so how, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you increase the value of that country or the, the, the workforce without comp compromising your culture and who you are? Well, you don't. And the, the point is that I don't think, I, I think the stupidest thing that we can do is be afraid of that negotiation to dig in our heels and say, you know, I am absolutely sure that the cost of allowing you to be part of this system outweighs the benefits without really diving into a full negotiation to determine what are the benefits and what are the costs and what are the possibilities. Because we, we, life is change. We all need to enter these negotiations in order to proceed with the one constant in life, which is change. And so it, it, it's, it's silly not to do that. But if you go, here's the thing: is that it, the state, you know, it, it, Italy became a, a country in the turn of the 20th century, right? And so the problem is, if you do the math on someone, you did, you did genetic tests, you'd find that most, that most Italians have only been there, you know, one to three generations, mm -hmm. and they're they're German, they're French, yeah, they're, you know, so you yeah. find that they come from different parts of the world, um, and. Uh, and so, you know, it's like, what constitutes an Italian? You know, my great-grandfather, he fought in the Italian army. My, my... In, 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 he fought in the Italian army 
on the Austrian front. So, uh, but but he but he his, he he came originally from Central Asia, from Afghanistan. My so, my wife's family is 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 Italian. My wife looks Roman. Her dad is German. Her one sister looks Mediterranean. Another sister looks Indian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a it's a very diverse set of genetics going on in, in an Italian family in America. Yeah, and so you got you know so so you know you know are are we there is that Italianness to our our family and then, and there's nothing wrong with that you know um and and uh, but there but if you're gonna and, and I would I would argue that that citizenship is um our it, 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 you know right like I said we we you know we're we're different. I mean I'm a, but I'm Muslim so it, would I am I welcome uh as a citizen to, in, in Italy um and the answer is yes you know because I know that part of who I am and, and and my culture and and what's going on but it's very careful when someone's defining what is. Yeah, yeah. And we deal with this in our faiths all the time, right? So, where I get hammered by the by by the Uma all the time and that I'm not Muslim, but they, but but guess what? Uh, none of them said that about uh, Abu Bakr Baghdadi, mm-hmm. the Imam of ISIS. Yeah. So, uh, which and it's so it's you have this this sort of interesting idea of what is and what isn't when it's not only convenient to attack. So it's convenient to attack me. It wasn't convenient to attack Abu Bakr, Abu Bakr back then. Right, Because, right. He, you know, then you, you might get your family killed. You might uh, get yourself blown up. Yeah. Uh, but you can very easily hammer me. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that we, um, you know, the, the identity politics of faith is... It, 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 it's it's a it's 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 a product of this ever changing landscape of culture and society and nationality and all this other stuff. You know, Douglas is Douglas is I think just selling books. Douglas Murray, I, I think that's what he's doing. Um, I don't believe and 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 he's a commentator and he's he's, he's keeping relevant. Um, I don't think he's incorrect about how he looks at England. I don't think Maloney is, is incorrect how she looks at Italy. The problem is is that they both. One is trying to is trying to is stay politically relevant. The other one is trying to sell books and and trying to stay relevant as a as a commentator. Um, and so the challenge is is that we're like you said, no one's really looking at the bigger picture, right? And no one's looking at you know we have like we have we have we have a a technology train that is left the station that's bearing down on us. Yeah, and. You know, I my theory about it's very different, um, but I think that you know if we're not like you're saying, if we're not careful, we'll all become irrelevant, or or the the, the society society will change so much that it it might jeopardize who we are as people. Is that what you're saying? What uh, society? I would I would say that that technology is is expanding and changing in spite of us in many ways, and so. Um, to the extent that we're not able to catch up with the pace of that change, we're going to find ourselves in very uncomfortable situations where the playing field has dramatically shifted and we're not sure what to do. In situations like that, as a group, humanity, we tend to panic. And oh, yeah. panic is never good. Right. And so 
I, I really think that. I mean, I think we're panicking now. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a lot of panic now. Yes. Um, but in, in in multiple pots. Ideally, change is purposeful and it's based on high ideals, right? And and that is very difficult because the easier thing to do is to sort sort of, sort of a slouch into adaptation. Like what happened with the evangelicals during the Trump era was a slouching kind of change. It was a change of convenience in which we sort of settled into a, a base attitude rather than looking at our ideals and trying to allow those to shape our choices. Right, the idea of that, of the, I don't, I, there's, a, there's a term for it, but it's like, you know, the imperfect king that, that makes changes for the, the betterment of the, the Christian community. I don't yeah. know what that's called, but there's a specific term for that. Um, you know, and it's interesting because, yeah, there's a that there is that 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 element within the Trump era of who you of, yeah, but there was a lot of gains. You know, you got the, got the abortion going and all this other <laughs> stuff. But the problem is, is now that that's happened, what are the issues that that the evangelical movement, right. the Christians, go after? Well, now it a, it's 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 going trying to swing back towards towards Islam, right? It was a Faustian bargain. Yeah. So for the people who sided with Trump because they wanted a certain set of particular changes. They got those changes, but the baggage that came a lot along with it has shifted our culture and our society in tremendous and generally poisonous ways. And so I, the only point there is that when we are faced with the prospect of change, which we always are, I think that we need to refer to our ideals and be willing to, to engage in dialogues and negotiations based on those ideals to make purposeful decisions for the future rather than constantly being in this cycle of distraction and panic that you're, you know, all these pings, right? Where we're constantly being distracted by urgent things that we have to put band-aids on, you know, uh, as you were talking, I was reminded of yesterday, I was calling utility companies and doing my work and my phone was making all sorts of different sounds and my computer was making all sorts of different sounds. And in the midst of all that, I got a phone call from a good friend who I need to catch up with, right? And that was the one thing that I didn't follow up on yesterday yeah. was calling my friend back, Yeah. right? Yeah. And because it was not as urgent Right. As uh, everything else. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't as forward. Yeah. And, and that's the problem is, you know, that, that forwardness. Well, I think, you know, I, like I said, I, I, I know we kind of, you know, when I approached you this morning, I kind of put you on the spot, but I, I always, I feel like you know, just, it's, it's, it's valuable because we're all kind of going through this idea of, of how do we manage uh, the stimuli and the stimuli is so high, you know, um, you know, I maybe we'll leave at this. Like I said, I had a, 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 a one of my number ones is doing surveys now, and I might have mentioned this before. He said to me, "He's do and one of the questions of the survey, and I said I agree to it because yeah, I know him, and I'm trying to help him along. And he said, he's, he's, he asked, you know, you're a high performer, so what, what's going on with you? And and how? And, and we walked through a series of questions. And one of the questions was, how many hours a week do you work? Yeah, and I said eighty to a hundred. And he, and he said, that's not sustainable. <laughs> and I said, well, it, apparently it is. Um, but is it healthy? I don't know. Um, 
uh, am I in survival mode? A psychologist once said to me that if you wake up at three in the morning every day and and uh, this happens and this happens and this happens, she goes, are all those qualities of who you are? And I said, yeah. And she goes, oh, well, you're in survival mode. And I go, yeah, because life is difficult. Yeah, guilty as charged here. Yeah, I was like, I don't know what you're talking I say, I don't know. I don't have that comfort of, of, of sitting here of trying to figure I, I, my sister is, is the opposite, right? My sister is semi-retired and, and, and from her, well, she's retired from her career and she's a musician. So she wakes up and she just does her music. And when she'll, she'll say that she works a hundred hours a week, but it's on her music. You mm -hmm. know? Um, and, um, and so we've, you know, we, we have to perform if we are going to fulfill our obligations to ourselves and, the people in our lives and our community. Right? right. And so as community changes, and I think this is what you're talking about, and as the definition of responsibility changes when it comes to what work is, mm -hmm. um, what an obligation means, you know, I, you know, is, is it okay for your wife to have a relationship with an AI husband while you are doing your work at the, at the, t at the desk? I, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I'm sure that, you know, I, I, I'm making that up. I don't know, you know, but maybe that is, um, maybe, maybe, maybe that is, maybe that's just where we evolve in life. Um, but, uh, it, it's a, it's a peculiar thing because I, I'm going to drive back in my car without this, that my, that this, this is the, the, the business car. And it's so it's going to be pain yelling at me the second I get into it about, I should be, you know, it's a seatbelt. The, the tires low. This is what's going on. That's what's going. You know, and well, so, the moral of the story is just buckle your seatbelt, man. Conform. She was saying, just you know. Well, I personally would like to see you again next week. I appreciate that. So, for for no other reason. For no other reason. Buckle your seatbelt. I appreciate taking that time, but <laughs> thanks, Charlie. <laughs> so, so, we ended with a nice PSA. <laughs> yes.